No credentials. Greatest album. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. Today we are discussing album number 39 on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Greatest Albums list. This is Remain in Light by The Talking Heads. Really excited tonight to have a return guest. Uh, people often run away screaming. It's not often that they return. So we're really happy when they do. Um, Dustin Wood, our friend Dustin, was on uh, our eighth review ever uh, when we reviewed London Calling the first time around. He made a very brief cameo, I believe, um, when we re released that episode a few months back when it was at number 16. I guess it's been a little while for that one, too. Um, and. Uh, when we were sort of wrapping up that episode, we said, is there anything else sort of on the list? And I think I remember you saying something, Dustin, along the lines of like, my dad was really into uh, new wave rock and stuff in the 80s. And so if Talking Heads comes along, uh, let me know. And I think at the time, this album that we're talking about tonight was um, down in the hundreds somewhere. So it wasn't it wasn't coming up anytime soon, but then... Bam, we get with a new list, and it jumps from 129 to number 39, and so uh, here we are. Um, it's kind of exciting to be able to do that a little faster than we anticipated, and uh, we're really happy that you're able to right. join us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me back, guys. I uh, didn't really think that it would ever actually get to this album anyway, so my, <laughs> empty, my empty promise became a check that I had to, I had to cash, so there you go. Well, and we we uh, we had some family stuff coming up. Uh, we we've had we've had you've had specifically loss in your life, and we had a date set, and then we had to postpone. Um, so yeah, we're 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 thinking of your mother-in-law and the loss of that uh, very special person, and um, we want to say thank you to coming on the show, even though you've carried that with you for these last couple of weeks. Um, for our regular listeners, we put up a placeholder episode promising you that we would eventually get to episode 39. Um, and so it's exciting to, to get to this point, even if it is with a little bit of a heavy heart here tonight. So thanks again, Dustin, and um, we really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I uh, appreciate that as well. I mean, for sure. It's um, it's never an easy thing, but, you know, we're um, I'm happy to happy to be here and just talking with you guys about it, too. It's nice. Glad to have you here. Well, I'd like to just uh, get kick things off. Uh, Dustin, last time we spoke, we kind of did some reflections first, but we flipped that around. So what we're going to do first, uh, we'll get into some details. And then uh, once we just lay the background for this album and how it was created, then we'll, we'll get into some personal reflections. Details, 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 details. Let's kick off with... Details about this album. So this album was released uh, October 8th, 1980. It was the, I believe, the fourth album released by this band. We always talk about who wrote it. And this is this is a band I don't know a whole lot about. But just in reading a little bit, I'm seeing a lot of interesting uh, interpersonal relationships and personalities. And we see that. So 
when I read uh, what's on the the Wikipedia page, and if you have a recent copy, it's uh, of the album. It says uh, all lyrics written by David Byrne, except uh, "Born Under Punches" and "Cross Cross-Eyed and Painless," written by David Byrne and Brian Eno. All music is composed by Byrne, Eno, Chris France, Jerry Harrison, and Tina Weymouth. However, this was not what was on the original release, um, and. Uh, many printings after that for a while uh it <laughs> it said something totally different uh and initially they they wanted it to just be alphabetical uh, but they couldn't decide how to do it uh so when they released it it said all songs written by david Byrne and brian eno except houses in motion and overload written by Byrne eno and jerry harrison and that was it it didn't say anything about <laughs> France or Weymouth. So France, Harrison and Weymouth uh, disputed that and uh, they were upset because they were part of creating the music and they, uh, as we'll discuss, they they partly funded the the album and it was uh, Tina Weymouth and Chris France who had rented a place in Nassau, Bahamas where they'd recorded most of it and, and they didn't even include them in the in the credits <laughs> even though they're part of it so so there's again a little tension obvious, obvious oh, sorry always a bit of tension with uh, the creative uh, force of this band David Byrne who they kind of he was always kind of the the head of it of the talking heads haha uh, anyways uh, <laughs> interesting about the the credits there but now of course they in all recent releases of this or reprints uh, it has all the names in there for the music uh, give credit where credit's due i suppose um it charted very well in the uk went to 21 even better uh 19 in the us and even better still in canada to number six uh very interesting and uh sales are over eight hundred thousand. um which compared to most of the albums that we've reviewed thus far is quite low. So again, sales don't necessarily express what greatness is or how great or influential an album is, but um, we do see that this is a little lower than some of the other ones. Um, I'm going to give just a few notes about the creation of the, of the album, and then if you guys have anything else to add, please feel free to jump in. Um, so it was, as we mentioned, it was produced by Brian Eno, and he helped write a bit of it. This was majorly influenced by uh, the 1973 album Aphrodisiac by Fela Kuti, a Nigerian musician, uh, part of the Afrobeat movement. Um, and that became the template as they created the album and wrote it. It was recorded in both New York and Nassau, Bahamas, as I mentioned. Um, and this comes after they after they toured for their previous album, Fear of Music. Um, they almost broke up. They decided to take some time off. David Byrne doing his own thing. Everyone else doing their own thing. Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth, who are a married couple, uh, go into the Caribbean and tour over, and they settle and, and rent a place in Nassau, Bahamas. And then eventually they all kind of come back together and make this album. Uh, but, but they almost called it quits. And so they make this uh, really interesting album. And it does very well and becomes very influential through the through the 80s. In fact, in 1989, Rolling Stone magazine uh, named Remain in Light as the fourth best album of the decade of the 80s. So uh, just a few notes there. Do you, do you guys have anything to add to that? I think it's kind of funny that uh, 
here we have the three of us talking about an album, another album that came out just before any of us were born. <laughs> so we've got uh, right. another one that's yeah. like sort of close to our lives, but just a few years out there. Um, uh, I think uh, Brian Eno also was hesitant to dive in. He produced them a couple of times and didn't really want to get involved anymore. I don't know if that has to do with him mm. not feeling like he thought they had anything left in the tank. Um, but visited them in the Bahamas and was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is good enough for me to to play a role in. So, <laughs> you know, what may or may not have happened had he said no, um, I think would have been interesting. Maybe, um, you know, he right. is a, a renowned producer that a lot of people hold up as like sort of making good things into great things. And uh, I'm sure they feel somewhat lucky to have, have had him remain with them in the light. <laughs> I, I could be I could be wrong, but I think I believe I believe Brian Eno played um, the Fela Kuti album for David Byrne the night they met. Like I, I think that was oh. I think I think Brian Eno was kind of introduced David Byrne to Afrobeat, um, and so I, and I you know there's a there's a bunch of stuff that that I, I think really this album doesn't exist without that influence entirely. Like it you can you know you can get into details, but you can hear that throughout the album um just another note kind of an anecdote i guess i've been around for a bunch of uh bands and i've been in bands where you know you're determining the order of credits um and and it is actually um uh, i guess alphabetical is the gold standard because that's that's indisputable it's not something you can argue that okay well you came fourth in the credits because you were the fourth uh the sure. fourth least you know greatest contributor but um <laughs> credits are such a such a fought over thing I, I remember being in a band in high school where we debated thanking girlfriends in order of length of relationship <laughs> you know or you know like that it's it's such a it's such a highly contested topic um yeah. and i and i i kind of i kind of get it you know what i mean like there's there's so much so much about this that you're putting out in the world and the idea that you're gonna you're gonna under that you're, you're gonna get cast like if you're Tina Weymouth, like she was completely like written out of the credits, like as if she had nothing yeah. to do with it, you know. So right, um, it's so it's, it reminds me of um, our conversation about the miseducation of Lauren Hill. She had like initially sat down in her right, yeah. in her home neighborhood in New Jersey with like some neighborhood kids and like kind of structured loosely what would eventually become the album. And then took that like early tinkering to, I think also to, she was in Jamaica, I think, somewhere like that, and and did the album yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. And then didn't thank them. And they sued and won uh, a case against her for that same idea. Like, hey, we, we had a hand in this. Uh, even though in her mind, it was like, well, what we did back then wasn't really what evolved into what it became. Like, that was just something else. Um, yeah, it really does get messy. And I'm guessing the bigger you are, the more people who are involved and the more people who you have to potentially upset when you're not including every single last name in the yeah. liner notes as well. Yeah, and I think I think Eno as well wanted to be, Eno was like they, the, I remember reading a thing that Eno was the fifth talking head, you know, so Brian Eno, okay. was, he thought of himself as an unofficial fifth member. He, I think him and David Byrne both have have massive egos. So um, you're looking at two 
giant ego personalities that are going to impart their vision yeah. for the album. And, and in some ways, whatever the contributions that the other people made, I, I, they might just think they don't matter. You know what I mean? Like I, we're, I'm purely speculating. Yeah. Um, but somebody with a big enough ego might think, without my vision, this doesn't happen. You know. Phil Spector, wasn't he like? Uh, he was famous for like just saying it's a Phil Spector album, not giving anyone credit, even though he was just the producer. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Did, did none of the production or none of the. Phil Spector famously, um, uh, he recorded a group and thought they sounded more like the Crystals. So when he released the album, he just said it was the Crystals, <laughs> because to him the artist didn't the artist didn't matter. It was what he wanted to it's produce a Phil and release. Project. <laughs> yeah, didn't matter. Wasn't mm. yeah. Uh, Dustin, I have a question for you. Uh, since we're talking about this, I've always been curious uh, as someone who has some experience in the industry. Do credits in terms of writing credits and uh, lyrics credits and music credits and all that that appear in an album? Do those affect the royalty contract in terms of uh when singles get sold and albums get sold does that like if you if you were one-fourth of of the group do you get one-fourth of the royalties or if you only contributed lyrics on one song is that part of it or is that not have nothing to do with that no absolutely it does the i'm gonna have to go back in my memory banks on credits um but um when it comes to songwriting royalties you essentially the pie is carved up amongst a number of people when you when you sign a record deal usually the record company your manager gets a portion the a and r guy gets a portion so any 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 songwriting royalties that come that come your way will eventually be divvied up usually by way of setting up a, a publishing company within the band at least how it's done modern in, in, the, in modern times um would be from there it gets divvied up within the publishing company and the songwriting breakdown could be um could be whatever essentially if you have a guy that writes most of the songs and the rest of the people are hired guns essentially then yeah he's going to get the, the lion's share of the royalties or all of it um if if a person was credited on a song and they did not receive royalties you're basically setting yourself up to be sued if the song is successful um so right. if you're going to put somebody's name on there as a accredited writer um yeah, absolutely. You're you're basically banking on getting paid. Now it doesn't matter if they're if the three of us write a song and then release it and literally nobody pays for it. I don't think it's a big deal if we decide to credit somebody else. But if it becomes a massive hit, we're gonna have to answer for why we put somebody's name on there and didn't pay them any money. Right. <laughs> gotcha. I um all, all these. Th- th- I mean, uh, this happens probably every on almost every album that's released there's some sort of dispute down the road especially as you say dustin when they come famous i don't know why this comes to my mind but um vince garaldi very famously on all the christmas music and all the stuff he did uh he never wrote it down and when the record the recording guy came back to him at the end of the session and said who played this he goes ah, i don't know and none of none of the musicians got paid anything for years because he didn't again he didn't care he was yeah. like i don't know who the session musicians are uh, it was me you know so <laughs> anyways i can see how that gets very messy and if you don't document it very carefully uh and then as you say dustin yeah a song becomes popular makes a lot of money then everyone wants their share right and rightfully so in many cases so yeah i just found that very interesting and i don't want to go off a huge rabbit trail because i'm sure we could talk we could do a whole podcast on 
on credits and and lawsuits and all sorts of stuff. Uh, but I just find it very interesting, especially when you get a band. Like I listen to this and I hear the influence. Uh, we'll talk about Tina Weymouth. I hear the I hear her bass playing influence, and whether someone else wrote the chart for her or not, I mean she's putting her flavor and her artistic ability into that, uh, and the other right. artists as well, of right. course. So, do do I want? Does she want to be credited on the album? Of course, like she was a big part of it, you know, and that goes for all of them. So, I just find that very interesting. And uh, yeah, thanks for going down that trail with me at least a little bit for sure okay i want to move on to this uh very striking album cover artwork which i'm sure i had seen somewhere and i was very familiar with the upside down a's in talking heads and somehow that struck me before i start talking about it ben I'll, t- I'll start with you ben because dustin i know you're familiar with this album ben was this an image that was familiar to you someone who's not as familiar with the music were you like, yeah, I've seen that. Do we need to or talk was about it like... Star Wars here for a minute? Oh, I wasn't going to bring it up. <laughs> I sh- I can't find... I tried to find it. And I couldn't find it again, but I shared with Ben. I don't know if you saw this, Dustin. I shared with Ben an image that someone had done, and it said on it, Tarkin heads. And I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And in the first Star Wars movie, the one of the villains is Grand Moff Tarkin. And it had... His image was behind the red scribble of every one of the members of the Talking Heads, and it said Tarkin Heads. And underneath it said Ramoff in, in light, because his character is Grand Moff Tarkin. So I sent it to Ben, and and he goes, uh, what is this? Am I supposed to get this? I was like, well, like, Talking Heads. Like He's like, okay, yeah, I know that album's coming up. But I was like, but Tarkin from Star Wars? And he was like, bah. <laughs> and then I realized that not everybody in my life is a massive Star Wars nerd like I am. So no, anyways, that's, that's uh, the Star that's Wars reference. Too, to be honest, I, I don't think I would have picked up on that either. Um, we got into a side tangent then too about like, oh, who geez, is this meme for? We've got like not a major <laughs> character from a movie and not an album that everyone has heard of mashed together it's uh it's an it's a niche meme <laughs> it's 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 a, a very specific group of people that's gonna get that and, and i guess i'm part of that group very proud but 80s then, kids 80s kids would probably be really very, right. really down for that and then i started trying to argue that grandma talking tarkin is the main villain in star wars to which ben googled and tried to prove me wrong because it says that it's darth vader which is it's false, of course. Everyone pretty, knows that. I'm pretty sure it is Darth Vader. I could be wrong, but no, I'm pretty, no, I'm pretty he's just a henchman in the no. first. Anyways, we're not going to go down that trail. Uh, Grandmarf Tarkin is the guy who tells him to stop choking. He's in like a. They're in like a. a uh, uh, they're in the boardroom having a business meeting, and he starts choking out his coworker. And Tarkin's like, "Stop it! Come, on, stop it! Don't do that." Uh, you see all, all the memes of him saying that's like uh, social distancing working when you're choking somebody from six feet away. <laughs> and then in the next movie, when he does it over a video call, that's working from home choking. <laughs> so anyways, um, okay. Speaking of rabbit trails, now we're... There's one website you're getting all these from for sure because there's no, there's no chance... They're not popping up on oh, yes. Instagram meme accounts. It's got to be something. No, it's a, it's a very specific Facebook fan page. <laughs> yeah, that, that I'm with eight members. <laughs> um, what was the question? I'm not going to dispute that. <laughs> uh, okay, the question was, 
Before we started doing this, Ben, were you familiar with that album cover? Was that an image you had seen? It looks familiar to me, but I don't know why. I'm guessing this is probably a Columbia House sticker that you could have peeled off and put on. <laughs> like, it's. N- I don't have a reference point for why I know this yeah, is an same. album cover. It just seemed familiar. I, and I, we'll get back to you and your familiarity with the album, Dustin, in a little bit. Um, but I want to. I want to talk a little bit about this. So this again. Uh, the artwork was mostly conceived by uh, Chris France and Dina Weymouth. And originally the concept for the front cover was of the four warplanes flying over the Himalayas. Uh, and that was a tribute to Weymouth's father, who was a U.S. Navy admiral and, and kind of some significance there. Eventually, they moved this idea for to the back cover. And that's what, what ended up being there. It, they've kind of colored them red and there's these four warplanes. And the four faces was initially going to be on the back. Um, and the working title for the album was called Melody Attack. And the planes fit more with that, but they just they scrapped that name and went with Remain in Light and then flopped the images from front to back. The, the early ideas for the faces were because uh, Tina Weymouth in, in 1980 was attending MIT... And she was uh, working with some classmates there who were uh, into uh, computer imaging, which was like groundbreaking. And they had a whole room to store the, the data servers or whatever, uh, the computers, because uh, they were so massive back then. Uh, she initially suggested that Brian Eno's face should be superimposed over the band members' faces to, to as we talked before, to insinuate his his. Uh, massive ego. That's uh, but, hilarious. But they, yeah, but they changed. They changed their mind on that. Um, Brian Edo initially did want to be on the cover, as you mentioned, Dustin. He did consider himself um, an unofficial member, but he again he decided against it, or he just got cut out and said it was his idea, which would make sense. Um, so uh, Weymouth worked with her uh, her classmates at MIT. Uh, they used. Uh, kind of these new digital tools to create many elements inside the album as well, including the cover. And this makes this uh, the final production, uh, one of the first computer designed uh, record jackets of all time. So a little bit of a kind of design history there. And I even thought that when I looked at the cover that, you know, it's got that kind of digital pixelated kind of look and they, I mean, it looks like like we've got you know Microsoft Paint. We can do stuff like yeah. that. But I guess it would have been a pretty big deal back in 1980. Uh, however, they did that. Um, last thing on the on the artwork here, uh, psychoanalyst Michael Brog has called uh, the cover a disarming image, which suggests both uh, splitting and obliteration of identity, uh, which introduces the listener to the album's recurring theme of identity disturbance. Uh, he says the image is in bleak contrast to the title. Uh, with the obscure, obscured images of the band members unable to remain in light. Uh, thank you for that uh, very astute observation, <laughs> psychoanalyst. That's just great. I think it fits the style of music. It's kind of a little abstract, a little weird, a little different, and and, and, and it uh, attracts your attention. What do you guys think? I was just going to say, it reminds me of... Um... 
the episode of The Office where Dwight cuts the face off of the um, CPR dummy and puts it on. It's got this like weird flesh tone like thing, and I, I don't know. It all it has this kind of creepy like layering to their faces. Um, maybe that's what the psychoanalyst was trying to get at a Hannibal Lecter like uh, um, yeah, weirdness. Thing. But uh, I think if I was in this band and the art guy came back and was like, "Here's what I've got," I'd be like, "Really?" Like maybe computer. <laughs> editing was that cool but it just kind of looks like someone like kind of sharpied out their faces uh so you don't know who's in the band anymore um maybe they were big enough to not really care at this point uh but it just feels like a kind of backwards from what a cover with four pictures on it is supposed to be doing um i don't know maybe there's something in that that's it's important but uh it's striking yes i have two sort uh, two perspectives on how i've looked at this cover i've seen it as one of my dad's albums for a bunch of years. It sat beneath the Morant stereo in my living room. And so I would see it when I was flipping through trying to find U2 or trying to find something else that I wanted to listen to. It wasn't and, and the Talking Heads was 100% my dad's music. So, you know, to, to sort of, I was not very interested in, in what they did. And he played Once in a Lifetime a bunch. And, you know, that, that was, I was very familiar with that song. Um, but yeah, to, I was so familiar with the album in the way that, you know, like a clock in your house would be familiar. I mean, you see it all the time, yeah. but I didn't consider it. I wasn't really looking at it and, and giving it much thought. Um, it, you know, and, and, and it was only when, you know, when we talked about me doing this podcast with you guys, I was kind of looking up the history of it. Um, and it's, it's interesting to sort of reconsider the whole thing when you, when you see that there's an actual, um, actual artistic you know, concept behind it, and the idea that this would be such a groundbreaking, a groundbreaking visual statement. You know, that the idea that something mm-hmm. computer generated would be this striking and this new. And and then I look a little closer, and to your point, you can see it's pixelated. You can see that it's it's not just red blotches that are splattered on their faces, but they've actually done some distortion to the image. And how much um, computer power that would have taken at the time? Like this would have been years of work that that has culminated in this image looking like crap frankly but you know what i mean like this is <laughs> this is this is a, a specific artistic expression i think that is interesting and i i know all four of them in the band are um art students or were art students and and i see that in stuff like this you see that they're willing to sacrifice the the band image the identity for the overall artistic concept and it right. it's really yeah, speaks to the music, in my opinion, because again, they always serve the song. Every so much of their music really does not serve to highlight a particular player. There's very few riffs or solos. Like there's not really much in terms of good point personal highlights within the band. It really is an artistic concept that gets fleshed out to its fullest capacity. Mm. Um, so it. it it's dated now. I mean, you look at the image in it, to your point, like it doesn't, it doesn't really, I mean, there's so much more we can do, right? But, but at the time, it's kind of the forefront of graphic design. Like it's as silly as it sounds like that, that's the, that's the, the most, you know, innovative technology they could use in creating the album cover at the time. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, really interesting. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, Dustin, you mentioned this is your, this is very much your dad's music, and that for a long time it was an album you passed over uh, to get to the other albums. Uh, but you're here, so there must be a very personal connection. So, what's, I guess, a few questions. You remember your first times hearing it? Was it when your dad played it? And was there a point when it switched from being just your dad's music to something that you? you make a connection with personally, if at all, or is it still just your dad's music? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Um, the, the specific story, I guess, would be, again, you know, growing up with it in the house. Uh, for Christmas one year, my mom got my dad a, um, a Greatest Hits Talking Heads album, uh, which was called Sand and the Vaseline on, on the, it was a dual CD. Um, because we didn't have the record player or wasn't working or something like that. So it was a chance for my dad to listen to music. And I really, really got into it then. And I was probably at that point, maybe 15, I guess, probably something like that. Um, so it was kind of a reconsideration of, of the music with, within the way my own taste had matured and the way that I was now listening to stuff. Um, and I think, I think it's it's uh, it's a natural progression to want to get away from the music that your parents listen to. You don't want to listen to that stuff. It's old. It's old man music. It's lame. Whatever you want to say. Um, but you know, and then in reconsidering it, I mean, it was really that I realized that they were a part of a movement that I had a ton of attraction to, which was the whole early punk, early American punk movement, which was you know bands at CBGBs and the Ramones and Blondie and. And their first gig was at CBGB's, and and you realize they're so for me as a teenager, their credibility was extremely high. Like they had the they had the uh, the credibility to be a legitimate punk scene band. Which, I mean, as far as fifteen year old me goes, it didn't get any cooler than that. <laughs> um, so, so anyways, but the but the the reconsideration for the album for me was just really. Um, getting a chance to hear this music in a new light and realizing that that there's a lot more to it and again their pursuit of the sort of punk and new wave craft is very different than all the other bands that, that were their contemporaries mm. at the time so yeah. they're not their their drive is actually towards the higher complexity um whereas you know you could argue most ramones and blondie and everything else was towards simplicity it's a really a drive towards the most primitive sort of music and you can make an argument for their, you know, this is maybe even more primitive, but like Afrobeat primitive. But at the same time, they were they were seeking uncharted. They were making uncharted. They're covering uncharted territory and making ground in in in, in music that was. It, it's adventurous to put out an album like this um, in a scene that really had not heard or seen anything like this before. You could make the argument they introduced Afrobeat to America. Um, they don't want to give credit to people and there's a whole other conversation maybe we'll have later about cultural appropriation in this whole thing too um, but um, <laughs> but you know but anyways the point is it, it's it's different it's a different methodology behind like that punk counterculture thing but it's counterculture in the form of of being unafraid you know being completely mm -hmm. adventurous and, and willing to try something new 
which again to me is just the coolest thing i forget where i read this this week but this idea that he's sort of um uh street preaching this album like so many of the vocals are kind of like shouted almost in a a random uh, unrehearsed kind of method uh i don't know about the influences that he's drawing from to know if that's cultural appropriation or or just punk and innovative um there's some references that that say that perhaps he's borrowing from early uh rap when he does that but um it doesn't sound like any anything else that i really have listened to before the, the sort of like halting way that he's he's spitting out <laughs> lyrics throughout this this album and uh, it, it it helps me sort of compartmentalize it just hearing you talk about that sort of back mm-hmm. back lens or backstory as well um i'll have to give that cultural appropriation piece some more thought and see as we keep going here <laughs> we haven't got to graceland yet which i think is going to be maybe the one where we spend the most yeah. time uh, going there sure but. soon soon um yeah, no, that's uh, well. What we can touch on that a, well, no, we want to. We'll, we'll move on to. We'll move on to that a bit, <laughs> a bit later. <laughs> don't want to jump the gun. Very different than you, Dustin. I don't think that Ben and I uh, have the same uh, relationship with it. Uh, ben, this was totally new to you, right? Yes, totally new to me. Was it familiar at all? I, I, I knew. I knew once in a lifetime, but I think that's it. I think that. I think that's it for me too. Um, yeah, I was. I was interested to see we're back at a sort of eight uh, tracks to an LP right. here again, which for a while there, it seemed like we were getting a lot of albums that had that sort of like eight to 12 tracks on an LP. And then we got into the hip hop world and, and everything got, got really uh, different. Um, so I was assuming <laughs> yeah. we were going to get kind of more of a classically structured album here. I was a little surprised by how much the songs changed. I, I kind of assumed that everything would sound like a variation on Once in a Lifetime, and that's not necessarily the case here. Uh, no. uh, so yeah, it's, it, I don't really think I had a good idea of what I was about to get into when I pressed play um, beyond being very familiar with Once in a Lifetime. Yeah, me, me neither. And, and I would say that the first track really... Um, Born Under Punches really sets the tone for the album, and a lot of the yeah. songs sound more like that than the rest. I, I guess I'll, I'll kick us off on kind of some review of, of some of the sounds of the album. Uh, I was struck within the first few beats on the, kind of hearing that uh, Nigerian pop, Afro beat coming through. As much as I'm not overly familiar with it, I. I familiar with it enough to recognize it and i didn't expect that at all i think just before i started listening to it i had started doing a little pre uh, cursory reading about the album mm-hmm. and had read something about uh, uh fela kuti again another musician that i was not familiar with at all and then i hit and i thought okay well we'll see what happens when i listen to it and i hit play and right away i was like oh yeah absolutely i hear that loud and clear and that uh, is very catchy. Uh, and back to your kind of street preaching comment, Ben, about the vocal, I kind of wonder, I think that's a David Byrne thing uh, more than 
an Afro pop fan. You hear that a bit if you listen. I just today I, I went and I listened to as much of the that Fela Kuti album as I could. You hear a bit of that, um, but it's more melodic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. In I, feel free to contest that. Um, I I think that's a David Byrne kind of because even on some of the other songs I'm aware of from other albums, like he does that kind of shouting and um kind of like uh bob dylan on a, on a on a roid rage or something but, uh... <laughs> i think i think there's i think there's kind of there there you can see in my opinion that the introduction to afrobeat for david Byrne and this sort of extends previous to remain in light um they have another song on fear of music i can't remember what it's called right now um but it's very much you can see like towards the end of recording for your music, they must have heard this Afrobeat and been like, we have to incorporate this. And it's sort of the, uh, Izimbra is what it's called. Um, and it's sort of the jumping off point for what this album is. And I think, you know, they're, whatever, whatever it is, whether it's art, music, business, whatever, there are transformative moments in people's lives. And discovering that music clearly was transformative for David Byrne. Um, you know, I and I, a lot of what he did absolutely sounds like this, but a lot of the pre Izimbra, pre this kind of stuff, or sorry, pre um, Remain in Light was much more conventional pop and, or, or I'm going to say, let's say new wave and new wave singing. Um, and it, I don't know, I don't know Afrobeat that well. And there's so many different cultures which utilize a similar style of music um, and singing. So I don't want to characterize them all the same, but, but there, there's definitely the element of Kind of like a stream of consciousness, sort of a um, a loose narrative that can that that's more like evocative imagery. It's mm-hmm. around um, it's around dance or dancing, and it's it's a moment. So like this this is less to be considered, in my opinion, as like a, a as a rock album that you go to a concert and jump around to than it is dance hall music that you would go to a concert and and grind you know grind out whatever i'm not gonna say that right but um you're gonna go there and, <laughs> and uh if you're gonna gyrate for a couple hours while you listen hey. to music you know so um yeah but it's yeah i can hear that you know what i mean and so in that way the the narrative doesn't have in my opinion lyrically doesn't have to be super strong through the song you have to capture a moment so when he said it like there's some of the lyrics make zero sense like if you look really closely i think they almost make virtually no sense at all they just sound good in that particular moment you know mm-hmm. um and to your point it's like a it, sometimes it's like a preachy shouty thing um but he can sing there are times that are much more melodic through the songs that that you can hear i played uh, i played this a couple tracks for my family just after supper tonight um, kind of like, hey, this is, I said, I'm recording. Here's, and I, I like to do this. Like, here's what I'm listening to. Here's what I'm reviewing tonight. See what they think. I played them once in a lifetime, and they were kind of like, oh, and my son goes, I think I've heard this. And they're all like, oh, this is weird. And they got to the chorus. They were like, oh, that sounds good. Like, you know, he starts singing, and it's a nice melody and very catchy. And they're all like, oh, yeah, I, I could get with the chorus. The rest of it, meh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But uh, yeah, you're right. He can um, definitely can sing. He's got a good voice. Um, he just uses it in different ways. We've seen this before, Ben. You know what, what happens when you get when you get people who uh, describe themselves more as artists than musicians. 
you know, we, uh, I, I guess the extreme would be when we talked about Captain Beefheart, who was like this yeah. just wild, wacky artist who said, I want to make a music album now. Yeah. I mean, he did, he did music before he did like blues music, but he was like, this is, this is an art piece. Uh, and a lot of musicians who listen to it go, this isn't music. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's just so, so out there. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, what's going to happen, as you said, Dustin, what's going to happen when you get four art students together? Yeah. Um, they're going to make art. <laughs> yeah. um, so songs have to stand on their own merit, for sure. Definitely, you can't just say this song only works if you listen to the other seven songs on the album. But there is definitely an element that the songs need to be considered as full compositions as part of a larger composition, not just as a... You can't. You there. There are singles on this album, but very loosely. Like there, the 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 reason I think that Once in a Lifetime is a single is because it might be the only song that actually has a chorus. The right. rest of them are essentially just long yeah. grooves, and yeah. and so you're not you're not really you're not really listening to this as a even even the vocals are a contribution of a whole, not necessarily the singular focus. They're not trying to communicate a particular message by way of a story or narrative. It's really it's really a, a, a feeling conveyed through an entire song, I guess, is kind of what I'm saying. Absolutely. Wikipedia has a note that Cross-Eyed and Painless was released for promotional reasons, which is something we don't usually see under singles. Um, almost like, here's, like, just taste what this album might be. And that song in particular, like, you're right, it's not, it doesn't have a traditional <laughs> structure to it. Uh, and that must have been jarring to like get to receive that and be like, so what are what are you sending us as your full album? Um, to to get that as sort of a, a sample of of this, the the thing that that very early in the album tells me that something different is going on here in the in the opening track, Born Under Punches. <clears throat> there's a bridge section where the guitar turns into electronic uh, like video game sounds there's like a, a a little riff that like as the note is bending it bends mm-hmm. into bleep noises and like does different things and uh, like they're yes. they're they're playing with sound in yeah. ways that uh, i'm sure i mean a lot we still don't really hear um maybe in some uh hip-hop spaces where where it's like really leaning on the producer to put their fingerprints on it i guess i'm thinking of this is making me think about kanye and like how i think i like him more as a producer than an actual performer um and and maybe another reason to sort of stoke brian eno's ego too to say like someone is really intentionally thinking about blending and mixing and coming up with new stuff once the band has already laid down the the bones of the music um they're getting artistic about it then i think that song you mentioned ben uh cross-eyed and painless is to me the best example on this album of the blend of that post-punk sound that they had established in their first three albums and the afro beat that they had bl- that brought in i think it to me, it was the the first one. I think leans have more heavily on that Afrobeat influence, and I think this one blends it very well with the percussion, the cowbell. You know, I love cowbell. Um, <laughs> uh, I I I even got I even got a credit on an album for cowbell. 
we won't say the band we won't say the band but it's the i think it's the only credit i have in an album um so i just had to get that in this episode somewhere uh but um uh yeah i think i think that really does that very well that song so it's not a bad choice to be one that uh, uh introduces the album to the public like this is what you're gonna what you're gonna get um, I want to move into the the sound a bit, Dustin. When you think about this album, is there a song or two maybe that really that you always want to go back to, or that kind of have a, a place for you when you think about this album, or or moments in it that jump out to you? I mean, I I don't think you can get away from Once in a Lifetime. I think it I think it is such a such a unique song to be used as a single, even even then. I think it's so such an interesting song to be so well considered as a um a piece about not feeling like you belong like you're displaced it talks about the identity thing um and it never really gets anywhere it doesn't really do anything it doesn't take anywhere take you anywhere or or ever solve the issue it just essentially talks Mm. about not feeling like you are in the right place it's definitely probably the biggest song on the album or the most recognizable song the music video for that one as well it was a huge moment, I guess, cultural moment, I guess. It's one of the one of the early music videos that was featured on MTV. And it's weird. It's extremely weird. And if you watch <laughs> it now, it's highly dated. If I remember right, there's there's like a CGI, but early CGI special effects water thing. Um, it's very strange, but it was big and it was it was really, really recognizable. Um, but for me, the, the song that captures the, the spirit of the album the best is actually Born Under Punches. That is hands down my favorite song on the album. It is so, the groove is so good. And the syncopation on the, on the, the bass line in particular, even just listening back to it this time, I couldn't believe how, how well placed all of the notes are and just how um, sparse it is. But yet it's still so driving. There's so little happening that pushes the song forward that propels it but there's it's still it still manages to maintain some level of energy which is just so impressive i i don't really i mean it comes down to the drumming frankly um but there's not a single riff on this album there's not one guitar riff anywhere it's it's basically all this angular jangly guitar noise that happens over top of a, a bass and drum rhythm section bass and drums only and that it's so fascinating to come out with this to your point um, sorry, I'm getting off track there, but I was just going to say it's it's such an interesting interesting concept for a, a, an opening song on an album, um, let alone for an entire album concept. But anyways, yeah, I really really love uh, Born Under Punches. I think it's such a great song. So intentional too. Every little piece, like even though it's simple, just you can imagine someone just like moving the parts around to make sure that they're all in their right spot and. It has, it has, it's not, it's not that, I don't think it sounds like, but there's elements of sort of a Brian Wilson, um, Beach Boys construction. And I think it would be, if, if, if this is what, um, if, if Brian Wilson essentially gave birth to multi-tracking, like he was the guy that, that basically started the idea that the musicians would not all be in the room together, that they would layer um, recordings on recordings on recordings and develop that whole idea when he was recording um, not Smile, the other one um, Pet Sounds, Pet sounds. Um, 
if, if, if that's if he's the birth for that this to me is sampling they basically the talking heads have created sampling here they have they have built a singular riff which carries through the entire song and then made a point to structure different ornaments with percussion with other instruments throughout it and that's that's the this is the very early version of sampling because it's not real sampling but it is it is essentially sampling with real instruments I, I found it fascinating that that is a dynamite track, um, opening track, just incredible. I found it, uh, the timing of it, not the not the drums, because the drums are fairly, fairly consistent, but everything else is so sporadic. Like, mm-hmm. I, I have, it must have been a nightmare to chart it. Um, <laughs> and, and especially with some of that weird guitar work you talked about, I don't even know how you, you can't even write that stuff down on staff paper but um yeah just so specific and unique i think it it, it sometimes uh, you get a sense that a track can kind of overshadow the whole album and i feel like it, it almost does that um of course the album's good but but that's it is very good it's tough to talk it is 100 percent very tough to talk it's, the first it's album, good first song and it, and a lot of a lot of it a lot of the other songs as well in my opinion they, they because they build on the same format it can be a bit repetitive um, not to say it's any less impressive but it, it definitely like I say I feel like you should be at a festival experiencing this album live over 40 minutes in a, in a context that allows for that sort of free form mm-hmm. um, engagement with other instruments and some soloing and whatever else is going on in the crazy backgrounds to see a crescendo at a certain point sitting down I don't know how much of a passive listen I can go through each song every time in a row, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's, it's not it's not Absolutely. built that way, I don't think. I agree. You've mentioned that a few times now about the kind of groove and the kind of just being more of a dance hall thing. When I listen to the, the Fela Kuti album, which is four tracks, but two of them are over are over ten minutes long. So very much that genre and certainly what he created in that era in that album and what him and his band were doing um, through the 70s there in the Afrobeat movement uh, was very much with the, just laying out a groove, very much like the jazz stuff of the of the 50s and 60s. Um, and yeah, something that you would just you would just dance to as opposed to listen to as a single. I found myself thinking about jam bands this week and and having to like pause and be like, no, 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 everything's tech, yep. technically proficient here. And yet it would like cycle through things and loop back on itself and made me think about some of the yeah. very brief moments where I've dabbled in that genre. Um, and like, I think your, your, your expression of, of dancehall music, I think one of the reviewers said like, this is an album <clears throat> that makes you want to dance and then you think about what you've been dancing to and that makes you want to dance again, which makes you want to think about what you've been dancing to. And that sort of like constant play for the listener i think is what jam bands are trying to do as well right it's like getting people to move but also like stop and be like what what the hell did i just listen to and and let's i want some more of it now um and i think that that play is really 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 fascinating to to get into i don't think i've ever felt that jam band feel from a a genre like this um and that's that's really interesting 
I do I do slightly resent the notion that Dave Matthews band might be even in the periphery of the talking well, heads, I think. I think Dave, I think <laughs> jam band Dave fans would be, would be bothered offended. by Dave Matthews being considered a jam band. So I think you were still safe here. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Matthews is too much of a bro band at this point for for jam bands, I think to to really take him bro. seriously. <laughs> Even some of your comments, Ben, there are making me think again about um, Captain Beefheart mm. and, you know, about how you talked about how this sounds like jam band, but it's very structured and very thoughtful. And the, that music was sounds totally improvised and avant-garde, yet every single note was planned and structured and rehearsed they got together yeah. and it sounds like a total mess yet every every second was orchestrated and planned and rehearsed yeah um and that i think that's very special and on this album in particular when you can do that when it can sound and the first track again it can sound like he's just doing some crazy improvised stuff when it's all very very thoughtful and planned out and intentional uh, I think that speaks a lot to the to this band and this music specifically. Sorry, I'm talking about Captain Beefheart so much. I don't know why <laughs> it keeps uh, coming into my head. I've never actually listened to it. I've never, I've never actually listened to the album. Oh, buddy, <laughs> strap. You know what? Put, uh, yeah, yeah. Have a few drinks. Um, whatever, whatever <laughs> other substances better. you're you're into. Um, and uh, boy, wow, just. It's just, uh, yeah, have 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 the ride of your life. Uh, you probably want to turn it off a few times. Um, uh, put in the headphones because everyone else in the house will want to kill you if you play it out loud. <laughs> well, and I think you have to let go of most of what you assume music should be. Like, yeah. <clears throat> there's a couple all, of tracks where all of all of it. <laughs> There's a couple of tracks where he's singing or speaking off tempo from the band and it keeps going after the music stops. And like he would say to them, you're going to end here. The song's not over yet. Let me finish my ramble like for another 10 bars or whatever. So there's just like stuff yep. that like yep. had yep. had someone with some musical sense been in the room they would have said, no, 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 you, you sing here while the band's playing and here's the bridge where we fade out. <laughs> Instead, he was like, no, 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 we're, we're going to break all the rules. And so I, I think yeah. there were moments where I'd be like, oh, I really like the sound of his voice or I really like what the, the band is doing here. Like, just get your act together. Like, it could be so much yeah, better, yeah. but that's not what they were. That's not what they were trying for. It's also really hard to find mm. unless you're a, a pirate torrent user it's not mm, on spotify okay. um i didn't know that that's crazy it's just this it, weird obscure thing yeah or he he'd he'd go to the he'd bang something out on a piano he couldn't play a single instrument and he'd tell the drummer who was the arranger he'd say that i want the the guitar to sound like this and he'd bang it out and i want the i want the piano to sound like this and the bass to sound like this and he'd go that those aren't in the same time signatures or keys at all. And you go, I don't care. That's your problem. That's yeah. what I want it to sound like. Yeah. Anyways, cool. we could go on. That was a three hour episode, by the way, when we reviewed that one. And um, it's not on this new list either. It got, 
no, got it's the not. axe. They got cut. So it wow. makes sense. It'll disappear sooner or later into the ether. That's funny. I, w- I want to make w- I want to make one more cut. Co- We've talked about a few tracks. I want to talk about one more. I thought throughout the album, very the words I came up with were thoughtful and creative bass playing mm. um, from Tina Weymouth, and in particular, I really liked the work on uh, "Listening Wind," which is one of the later tracks. Um, she goes from a kind of plucking, thumping to kind of uh, sliding. Uh, chords or or just intervals um man it adds such a such a flavor to the to the drumming solid drumming uh unique and interesting guitar work and of course creative vocals um you've got this amazing man anytime you have bass work that's not just you know straight eights or arpeggios or anything uh it just totally changes the landscape of the songs and i think she does such a great job I don't want to get too hyper into the, the, the gender roles, but I think in nineteen in the late 70s, 1980s, to have a woman, just a woman playing bass in a band was, as weird as to say, was revolutionary um, to have that and a successful band. But, but what she's doing is like tops, just great. Mm-hmm. So I just, I noticed that. I mean, I, Dustin, I know you're a bass player. I've, yeah. I've played bass on and off throughout the years and and i think it's my favorite um i've i've played guitar i've played sax i've dabbled in drums uh bass i think is my favorite to play and i feel most comfortable when i'm playing it so i i have an ear towards that and i just love what she was doing on this album i thought it was great it it and it set and it set it settles in behind everything it settles in you don't hear it and that's the sign of a great bass player musician when it just settles in and just adds to everything else. You hear the guitar just in your face and the vocals in your face. As you said before, Dustin, the bass and drums, they're amazing and they're unique, but they settle in behind everything. It's fantastic. I really have been realizing as we go through this podcasting journey that every once in a while there's an album that gets me to challenge my musical biases. And I I think with this one, what I've been learning about myself is that I, I think this is a recurring thing that I'm I'm discovering. But I I want the lead vocal to be a bit more musical. I can hear um, the band that kept coming to my mind as I was listening to this that I like that's more current is Architecture in Helsinki. They borrow a lot of the uh, Afro pop sounds and some of the halting lyrical sounds but they're far more melodic in how they add in vocals and they've taken some of the like groundwork here of this like outside the box album and have turned it into something a bit poppier and i find that far more palatable i will listen to architecture in helsinki all day long um but i can't really hang with the talking heads for that long before i'm like uh it's just too much work to to be in this space i need something <laughs> a little bit more candy coated and i think that's good to to be aware of that bias that uh i struggle in this mm. space it makes me want to return to it i don't want to stay there but it makes me want to challenge myself to think about why is it that i need that sort of more melodic vocalization um than what they're giving me here i i think i want more of the chorus from once in a lifetime to be on this album and that's not what they were going for right they were that's the sort of song that they handed to the 
radio stations to get airplay. That's not the thing that they were crafting. It's a good learning, I think, to, to have that happen. <laughs> well, I think I think there's I think there is so many uh, to your point, whether it's architecture in Helsinki. Um, there's so many bands that are derived from bands like this. Like this is essentially, mm-hmm. in, in some ways, their their sales numbers tell you they're they're a musician's band or a band's band quite often. Um, they're they're the kind of band. The, the joke always was with Velvet Underground. Everybody that went to the first Velvet Underground concert started a band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was like something like only ten thousand people bought the album, but they all formed a band or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Same, same right? deal. Like, yeah. In a lot of ways, I feel like. I feel like Talking Heads are kind of the same way, and there's so many bands that are, so many modern and current bands that really, to me, are derivatives of Talking Heads that took mm-hmm. the concepts and then ran in slightly different directions. So you've got uh, Arcade Fire as an example that took the idea of like spectacle and live show, and um, in the in particular with Talking Heads, which I don't, it, it's totally captured on the album, but um, their live show was nine people. So you know you've got this idea of a. Of an event of of yeah. sort of a critical mass of music happening, right? And that's what Arcade Fire took, and then inserted quite a bit of chorus and quite a bit of pop sensibility. Um, and then there's the other band that I, I oh Vampire Weekend, sorry. So Vampire Weekend oh, yeah. would be sort of the the other side of that coin. So they took it's it's really very much a like a they introduced some element of Afrobeat. There's a lot of jangly guitar. There's they're they're clearly the band that has listened to these albums quite a bit, but their pop sens- sensibilities are so intact that they write a lot of choruses and great choruses too. Um, it's 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 such an important thing for musicians like this. They to me they are the um, they're the high fashion of the fashion world. So on the, when you watch the shows on the runway and you see people walk down in dresses that are shaped like triangles and and you know they're they're uh they're doing stuff that you're like nobody will wear that like nobody is gonna go out of their house with a literal garbage bag and then like duct tape running in a circle from top to bottom on their body um but without that that's the inspiration for like a cardigan or something like i don't know the exact context but no you're right (laughs) it is it is the raw the raw form of what eventually becomes the pop sensibilities right and and i think that's what what i hear when i listen to this album in particular is i can hear a lot of the origins of stuff I really like today. There's so much stuff that, that I listen to that ha- that guitar sound in particular is like one of my favorite guitar tones because it is such a, such a, I don't know, it's it's in all that, um, in all that really modern indie rock, like it's really, really very Absolutely. popular, you know, and, and it wouldn't have happened unless, unless this was, this kind of album did come out. It's like critiquing it almost is missing the point. Like it's like critiquing the triangle dress on the runway. Like, because that's not—it's not meant to be the thing you wear. It's meant to like spark the inspiration for whatever comes next. Do you think that's fair to say, or is that giving them a pass for creating music that we don't really want to listen to all the time? Well, <laughs> I, I think it's—I think it's—it's it's different types of critical interpretation, right? So, yeah. so on the one hand being crazy and being out there if you to extend the fashion analogy just doing something crazy is not enough it has to be purposeful and has to have intent and that, yeah. that's the difference so for me the the appreciation is less on the the particular like I, like i say there's still like i still like a lot of the songs on the album but i will not 
necessarily put it on as a regular listen. Um, and it's 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 more a matter of, of a of a, a different critical interpretation, a different different method of critically interpreting an album because it has to be considered in the within the framework of what does it inspire versus what what am I going to listen to today? I think you know because again same thing. Even if you look in your own closet, you're not necessarily going back to the fashion analogy. You're not going to pick your most adventurous piece every single day of the week, right? You're at sometimes want to be challenged to do or wear something that's more um, adventurous, right? And then other times you're going to be like, I just want to wear a hoodie and that's all I'm going to do. We really like to talk about the relevancy of the albums every time we review an album. And I really struggle with this question. Is this relevant? I'm thinking, I'm sure it is, but I can't place it. But you you seem to kind of have a handle on some of and i couldn't put my finger on it but when you mentioned the guitar sounds yeah you hear that in a lot the high treble very punchy uh twangy not twangy like country but like you hear the strings is what i mean um so in your opinion dustin would you say this this album is still relevant to the music being made now um because of those sounds or is it like that high fashion that it just kind of got something going but now we've moved on uh what what do you think that's a tough one that's really tough actually i I think an album like this um is a little more timeless than other stuff that serves the same purpose so there are other albums that have have gone on to spawn and inspire entire genres but have aged poorly i think this album has aged pretty Mm -hmm. well and i think that realistically if you were to sort of drop this album and a person with no experience in society, in society, sorry, onto an island together, and get them to listen to it, it, it would it would still stand a reason that it would inspire something. It would be in- interesting and inspirational. Um, it hasn't necessarily lost its purpose, but at the same time, you see this happen with all sorts of things. There are so many different derivatives now. It sounds it sounds, you know, like it's it's something you've heard many times before. But I still think it's very cool. Like I, I really do. I really think you could listen to this album, and and there's stuff in it. There's still little things that even when I put it on headphones, because I've never listened to it on headphones. When I put it on headphones, there was stuff I was hearing that I've never heard before. Things I was like, that is a cool detail, cool percussion mm. bit, um, wrapped in the background somewhere. That that actually it's not just like a noise, but it actually serves a purpose to as part of the many layers that you know that make up the song. And then when you hear it with new speakers you're hearing it's like hearing with new ears it's, mm-hmm. it was i was surprised yeah so long answer yeah i think it's still somewhat relevant it just struggles it struggles to separate itself from a lot of the music out there now that currently sounds like what this what this started for sure i, I think one of the questions we we used to ask more but we kind of moved away from it and it sometimes comes up is is does it sound dated and i listen to this and when I try and separate, I can't place this in a decade very well. Like, it doesn't sound like 70s rock. It doesn't really, like, it sounds like New Wave. But New Wave, everything in New Wave, all of it sounds very different from each other. Like, it's not like New Wave, it all sounds the same. Some of it is similar. But I think, to certainly to the layperson, you don't hear this and go, oh, that's definitely, you know, 70s rock or that's 80s whatever. Um, so I think that, it that I think, helps it a bit because you can transfer it maybe a little better if you're making music. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe so, maybe not, but, um, 
I was really struggling and I'm glad that you, I'm really glad we have you here uh, to help us because I was going, I'm sure this is relevant. I'm just not, I just having a hard time figuring out why. Uh, and I don't listen to all the new stuff coming out, but when I do turn on the radio and hear the new stuff, now I can go, yeah, yeah, a lot of that's there. Uh, ben, anything to add on that, on the, the relevancy point? Uh, I think you've both helped me sort of crystallize the thought that this is a, is a really good bridge band between eras. Like, I think they're borrowing mm. from what came before, and they're setting the table for what came next. And so... <clears throat> yeah, I think ironically, um, the the one song that everyone knows from this album is probably the one that's the most dated sounding. I think, I think that really does sound like an '80s track. <laughs> when I hear that, it, it makes me think, oh, you're you're doing the '80s decade of the radio hits now. Um, <laughs> uh, but the rest of the album doesn't necessarily carry that same sort of datedness to it. Uh, but it. It's like it pulls from the past and I think uh, inspires what, what comes next. So I think it, it acts as a really good bridge. I don't know what that means for for relevancy. I, I want to say this is a really important album. I'm not sure that I want to say it's like super, super relevant. Um, and, uh, Dustin, your name comes up fairly frequently as the guy who who like in while you're in music college is like buying CDs because they're your textbook. And I think about you frequently when we come to this question, because it's like, I don't want to forget about this music. I want this to be held up to say, like, look at this placeholder here. Remember this time when um, put this in your collection because it sets up what comes next and it draws on what came before. Yeah. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean I always want to have it on or that it's like still sounds cutting edge, but it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. We can't forget that we, we do have a Spotify playlist, um, SoundLogic favorites. We pick two tracks from each album we review to go on that playlist, and we love to have our guests pick those tracks when we have them. So if you could pick, I think I know which two you're going to pick, Dustin, but which two would you put on that playlist from, the, from this album? Uh, oh, for sure. It's gonna, I'm going to put uh, Born Under Punches and Once in a Lifetime. Yeah. Those are my two guesses of what you put. And I think those are great choices. Um, Good. Absolutely. They've been added to the playlist. I uh, I had to skip back from Vampire Weekend. I was rocking out to them with that uh, comment about them sounding similar, which I had not <laughs> thought about at all this week. But um, yeah. All right. I didn't add any Vampire Weekend, I don't think. So we're all set. So we get to our, our, our other really challenging question, which is, uh, was the position, the ranking on the list sound logic so we've got this sitting here at 39 moved up about 90 spots from the previous ranking why don't we start with you ben on this one um and then i mean dustin we uh ben and i kind of live and breathe this list it can be tricky to answer this without uh <laughs> as much involvement with it as we have but uh we'll start with you ben um 39th best album of all time what do you think about that I really struggle with these albums. You know, we've sort of come to this conclusion that this is really important and really influential. I think it deserves to be on this list, but I'm not sure it deserves to be this high. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that that it has risen. I would have expected it to be this high on the older Rolling Stone list, which I think I put more weight on stuff that influenced. Um, 
what came later. Uh, so I, I don't know. Uh, I think this feels a little high to me. Not that I don't think it's unworthy. I think, I think it should be on this list somewhere. I'm just not sure where because of what we've already been talking about. What about you, Dustin? I know we obviously you're you're a fan of this album because you could got you here, uh, and maybe without having a a ton of knowledge of of the rest of the list, um, do you think it's too high, too low? Any thoughts there? Say pass if you don't feel you can answer. <laughs> <laughs> so I I actually I guess I kind of I kind of I'll use it as a springboard just to make a quick comment on another element of this so where another element of this album that i think maybe helps qualify its position on the list um if there's if there's any amount of if there's any any time when you can um carefully and in a nuanced and a really um well thought out way introduce music from another culture this is probably one of the best ways that you can do it so they've managed to incorporate the sounds and the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the grooves that, or the, the, the sounds and concepts from another culture's music without using it in a really sort of hammerhead tokenistic way, I believe. I really feel that way. I don't feel like it's a, you know, it's like a song and a sitar, you know what I mean? It is a is an interpretation of a type of music that they enjoy. So for that reason, um, I think it's one of those things, yeah, it actually did deserve to move up on the list because it was a gateway for a number of other musicians and other bands in that Afrobeat genre to start making marks within the United States, within Canada in particular. Um, that wouldn't have happened if this album hadn't come out. And again, it like I say, it's not just taking one element of a culture or music and then just sort of shoehorning it into otherwise pretty, you know, mediocre pop songs, but actually interpreting it in a way that's, I think, respectful to the original source. Um, there might be people that feel differently, and I can't speak for the culture who which it's drawn from, obviously. Um, but it, but it, at the same time, I feel, I feel like it deserves the place on the list. And... Um, my only bias is that I like the album a lot. <laughs> no, and thank you for circling back because you mentioned that uh, issue of is is this cultural appropriation, um, and and we didn't come back to that. So thank you for doing that. I think that's an important uh, important thing to look at. I know that again tonight I I played this for my family and my wife Nora. Uh, I mentioned the the influence, the album that influenced it by Felicuti, and she said, "So is this just another album that's been appropriated from another culture by by a Western group?" And I said, "Well, I'm not an expert on on either the Talking Heads or Felicuti, but I'm going to go and from what I've learned and listening to it, go and say no. They they really enjoyed it. It influenced them." But they found a way to take some of those elements and blend them into their style of American music and kind of honor and as opposed to just taking, you know, taking one musician or like you said, with the sitar and some of the Beatles just throwing a sitar in there um, and saying, well, we've got Indian music. Um, I think I think I'm going to say no. Um, and and they were very. The other thing I said was they were very upfront in saying that that he inspired them. 
like like his music like they didn't it wasn't like they didn't tell anybody and just kind of said you know it was just kind of people figured it out like they they said no this album like totally inspired this i said in terms of giving credit or royalties i i can't speak to that but i'm glad you brought that up and ben you're right we'll come back to that i think i think very soon talking about uh, paul simon's graceland and and we've talked we touched on it with the beatles but it's a really important point but without knowing too much about it i i i think they did it well i agree with you dustin and and i guess it comes to me about this uh the ranking i really like what you said and if this if nothing else if this gives if this opens a new audience to hear that culture's music and for people from that to from that style of music to come in and find a home uh in other countries then that's a, that's a great reason to put it up in the ranking in my, in my mind so so i can i can definitely jump on board I, I i wouldn't have been surprised or upset and again i'm not familiar with this album it had been you know closer like somewhere between 50 and 100 i think it would have made a ton of sense but i think uh it it definitely uh there's some credit to putting it up here for sure and i'm glad that i'm glad that it is up here that means we got to talk to you sooner than we would have <laughs> Dustin, you did you did start to reference some other uh <laughs> other songs and albums from talking heads so we like to mention if we're gonna uh, visit this band again they have one more album number 365 more songs about buildings and food great uh name great title uh and in the 2012 list there were two more albums on uh 291 talking head 77 which i believe is their first album and number 345 stop making sense but both of those albums are no longer on the list so uh, since we only got to 60 on the last list, <laughs> we, we won't be doing those. Maybe when we finish, that's right. We'll when we finish back. these 500, we'll circle back and do the ones we never got to. Yeah. All 300 more. Until uh, another, you know, 320 albums from now, that's it for the Talking Heads. Well, unless a new list comes out, and then you can be on a lot faster, Justin. Stop it. Stop. <laughs> uh, I'm going to rage quit if that happens. Um, Dustin, want to thank you so Not much having for, for sharing you mean a new uh, this list, time right? with us. It's been great. To... What? <laughs> you were going to yeah, rage the, quit yeah. that Dustin yeah. is going no. no, no, no. I'd be happy to have Dustin back. If they redo the list again, I'm going to lose my mind. I, I was incapacitated for like 24 hours when that happened last time. I didn't know what to do with my life. Um, no, Dustin, you can come back anytime. Uh, it's been great to talk to you again, my friend. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate the chance to chat about this. Um, yeah, a ton of fun and uh, just awesome to sort of, this is not something I do in my day to day life. So really nice to chat about music for a while. No, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Ooh. Oh, well done. Well, well tied in. I like that. <laughs> Let's do it again. Yeah, definitely have you back. Um, hey, Ben, what do we got coming up next? Yeah, we recorded this slightly out of order, but this is uh, album uh, number 39 on the list. And so up next at number 40 is The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars by David Bowie. So please be sure to join us for that one. Until then, we want to thank you for listening at home. Please continue to be safe. Take care of yourselves and those around you. And we'll talk to you next time here on the Sound Logic Podcast. 
If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.